We're going to be in Exodus 16. Exodus 16. So go ahead and turn there. We're going to talk about Sabbath part two today. And I'm so excited about this. This has been amazing for me to study Sabbath. Um, while you're turning there, Exodus 16, I'm going to give you a couple of announcements. Um, we had a worship night planned for Friday night. I think we're going to shift that a little bit. So I'll let you guys know about that um, coming up. Um, we are, me and Matt, and we've got uh, Marty Solomon on the schedule to, to record something for, this, for Dream Plus that we announced last week. And so we've already got him, so he's going to do something. Um, he's going to do an episode with Matt, and that's going to be awesome, and we're getting connected with some other voices. And so we're, we're getting that thing together, and it's just going to be such a blast to have. Um, you're going to be able to literally go on an app and find any resource that you need to go deeper with the Lord. And so, um, so that's going to be awesome. And so we're working on that. Just be kind of on the lookout. We might even send out some like previews just to see what y'all what y'all think about it. So, um, anyway, so we're working on that. We're also working on something y'all could pray about. And I'm actually maybe even calling a lot of you, <clears throat> Rachel, um, <laughs> to help out with. Um, we we need, um, and I say need, I mean like we really need a children's resource um, that is in line theologically with uh, truth and um, because we you know we we go through uh, some of these devotionals with Veda and some of the stuff I'm reading in these devotionals I'm like yeah this is cool but like ooh, you know and having to go back and correct so um, so the our our this is my brain Um, we're writing at the same time as everything else we're doing right now a 52 lesson, so 52 weeks in the year, one every week, et cetera, um, resource. And it's literally just going to be go through the whole Bible. And it's going to be a verse or two. Um, it's going to be a lesson. It's going to be like how you can apply it to the week. And the reason I said Rachel is because, Rachel, you're amazing at painting. So <laughs> if it's just a white book with black letters, it ain't going to be fun for kids. So I'm going to call on Rachel probably. But um, anyway, but I'd love to call on some of you because y'all have some talent to write and imaginations and all that stuff to like help us out with these things and so anyway so that's another thing we're working on then we're just gonna give it out to churches that would like that resource um so we're working on that too but one more thing we're uh, also about to start me and jordan were talking about this this night this is something the lord just really just really i guess he put it on her but more than me um is we're gonna start once a month this is why i said that about the worship night um having dinner at our house and i know we live in lexington but you know, 10 minutes more drive. Um, but so, yeah, so, and just having all of you guys over at our house, I don't know, there's just something, we were talking about this last night, there's just something different about, you know, Tuesday night at Hannah and Tim's, you kind of felt this, um, about being in a house. You know what I mean? And so, I don't know, it's just something that just, just feel, has a different feel. So, um, so we'll let y'all know in the next couple of weeks when we do the first one um, and what night. But just so you're aware, that's something that, um, we're going to start doing A, so that Jordan can hang out with you guys more. Um, she would love that. And, uh, and B, just so, you know, y'all can just come over to our house and see all the landscaping work I've been doing. So um, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. But, um, but anyway, so, yeah, so that's all the stuff coming up. Am I missing any announcements or anything? Okay. Thursday prayer. I know y'all have been turn, uh, tuning into that, but that has been a blast to do, too. So Thursday morning is at 1030. You can just get on the app or come in person, whichever you want to do, and, uh, and just kind of go deeper with us. So anyway, that's enough announcements. Let's, let's get into to the message. So let me read you a story that I wrote 
then we'll go to Exodus 16. Really kind of uh, not that deep story, but I just want to kind of start your brain going a little bit. So here we go. There once was a schoolboy who took his own lunch each day to school. However, he constantly feared his mother, in the midst of all that she had to do, would forget to pack his lunch. So he started taking portions of what he did have for lunch and storing them in a jar. That way, if she ever forgot, he would still have food to eat for lunch. One day, while at school, his mother discovered the jar. On it was a taped postcard that said, If Mom Forgets Lunch. For a mother whose life revolves around taking care of her boy, this hurt. Somehow along the line, without any reason for him to do so, the boy began questioning the faithfulness and trustworthiness of his mother. So she devised a plan to prove to him that she would never forget his lunch. She threw the jar away. When the boy got home, he furiously looked through the house for his jar, his anxiety rising with each failed pursuit. His mom said, I saw a jar full of old food and threw it away for you. He said, Mom, that was my backup food. Backup for what, she said. For if you get too busy for my lunch, he admitted. She hugged him and said, Let me prove to you I will never forget your lunch. So for the next four months, the rest of the school year that followed, every day his lunch was waiting. And the next year... There was no more jar. Thank God, as hard as it was for the boy who had put so much trust in the jar that the mother threw the jar away. You and I so often build barriers between our lives and needing to trust God. Though God has never given us any reason to not trust Him, we still really don't. That's why we so often have problems with Sabbath. Our society's fight for security and comfort has stripped us of the most basic requirement to be human, which is trust in the Creator. And while our bank accounts and careers and cars and houses grow, often our humanity is eroding. Those are good things to have. However, as Mark 8, 36 says, what does it profit them, you and I, to gain the whole world, yet forfeit or in exchange for their life. What's the context for this verse? I'm not talking about this verse, but this will give us some insight. What is the context for that verse? 836, Mark 836, something we know all the time, we've heard all the time. What does it profit them or a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? The, the better translation is, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit or in exchange for their life? Here's the context for it. This is the verse before, which you and I also have heard a lot. We rarely hear them together. The verse before this, Mark 8, 35, says this, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Here's what's interesting. This is the Greek, okay? Whoever wants to save, the word save is sozo, it means to make whole. So whoever wants to make his life whole will lose it. The word lose is apolomie, which is destroy. So let me say it like this. 
Whoever wants to make his own life whole will actually destroy it. Okay? But whoever destroys or loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will actually make it whole. There's a, there's a, there's a Greek play on words here, okay? Whoever attempts to make their own life whole will actually destroy their life. But whoever destroys their life for my sake and the gospel's sake will actually make it whole. And even the word life there is suke, and sometimes that's translated soul. Really what that word means is your individuality, what makes you you, okay? So just one, just one more time. Whoever wants to make his, in, his self whole will destroy their self, who they really are. But whoever destroys or loses their self for my sake and the gospels will make their self whole. What's Jesus saying? It's not gaining the whole world that causes you and I to forfeit our lives. This is what so many have suggested when they read that verse. You know, what is a prophet of man to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And here's what the teaching is: If you gain the whole world, you'll forfeit your soul. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is this. It's not gaining the whole world. It's gaining the whole world by way of autonomy that causes you to forfeit your life. The word autonomy means just self-government, so by yourself. Jesus is not saying gaining the whole world is wrong because David and Solomon practically gained the whole world. Solomon was so rich, it wasn't even funny. Okay? So, so it's not saying you gaining the whole world is wrong. It's saying you gaining the whole world by way of your own doing is what's going to destroy your life. In other words, God wants to give you the desires of your heart, but if you attempt to, to achieve the desires of your heart on your own, you'll actually destroy the desires of your heart. Because the desires of your heart were only meant to be received by way of rest. Okay? God promised to bless Israel in such a way that they would be the most blessed nation of all nations on the earth. This is what it says in Deuteronomy. You will be the first, not the last. The head, not the tail. Above only, not beneath. The lender, not the borrower. He says, I'm going to make you the most blessed nation of all the nations. Yet as in the story we're about to read in Exodus, he took that blessing away if they forgot that it was God who provided for them and not they that provided for them. That, that's the primary focus of Sabbath and rest. And honestly, it's the primary focus of the tithe. It's an act of remembering that you are blessed only because he has blessed you. That's what Jireh means. God provides. Not you and I provide. He provides and we receive. That's the beauty and the danger of being God's kids. It's the beauty and the danger of being His kids. It's beautiful because you and I find all of our lives in receiving from the hand of a good dad. Which is an amazing thing. It's a dangerous thing because the most unnatural thing for you and I living in the West is to receive rather than earn. So it's an amazing thing because we can breathe. 
It's a dangerous thing because we were never taught to breathe. We were taught to work. And that doesn't mean you quit your job and just say, you know, well, God will provide. It means everything that you do is from the mindset and the posture that everything I have is from Him, even if I earned it by the work of my hands. The work of my hands is from Him. God is good, and your best and my best is to trust that God will go to any length to prove to you His goodness. This is what Psalm 26.2 says. Prove me, O Lord, and try me, test my heart and my mind. Okay, The word test there, we're about to see in Exodus 16. It's the same word used when God tests Abraham with Isaac in Genesis 22. Same word. Test me, prove me, O Lord, try me, test my heart and my mind. Psalm 26, 2, that's David. God does that very thing to Abraham when he tells him to take Isaac up the mountain to kill him. And it refers to the process of refining a precious metal such as gold to remove the impurities and make it pure and strong. So David is saying, essentially, remove the impurities from me, O Lord, so that I might be who I really am. Okay? When God finds you and I out of sync with who we are and who we're supposed to be, operating autonomously from God, taking our lives into our own hands, listen, it is goodness that begins testing, trying, proving, and if necessary, removing as much as it takes until you and I realize that our lives are actually hidden in Christ. That's Colossians 3, 3, verse 3 that our lives are hidden in Christ. When we begin to operate as those who don't need God anymore because we got this figured out, enlightenment period, when that happens, it is the goodness of God that begins to prove to us that it is not by our hands that we've earned anything. And the way that God proves that to us is by allowing the work of our hands to start failing. And that's called good. Because we need to get back into a posture of trust in the work of Christ, being those hidden in Christ, rather than, thank you, God, for what you did. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross. Now I got this. You know what I'm saying? And that's why so many people, I mean, he talked about like church attendance, and I'm speaking to a bunch of people who are at church today, but that's why people in the South so struggle with going to church. You know what I'm saying? They struggle with this, and the reason they struggle with this is because, essentially, I mean, if we're being honest, we don't need God. I've got a job, I've got a career, I've got a retirement, I've got a family, I've got a house, I've got a car, I've got a white picket fence, and I've got a dog. What do I need God for? And we have completely missed the fact that when our ancestors came here, as good or wrong or jacked up as they were, I don't know, but when our ancestors came here, they came here with one purpose, and that was to worship freely. That was it, okay? I know history and stuff is like getting people canceled now, I don't, whatever. Um, I'm already canceled, but um, I say that I'm not really, but I'm long for the day when I'm canceled just so I can say I've been canceled. But anyway, the, uh, the, the, the pilgrims, right, on the Mayflower and the whole thing, you know the story. Um, actually, some of you might not know the story. I don't even know if they teach that anymore. I don't know if they're allowed to. But they come across the ocean, and the sole reason that they leave England to come here, the only reason is to worship freely. That's it. That is the only reason. So they come here, and do you know what happens when they come here? They have nothing. They don't show up and New York City has been built from the ground up. 
know what I'm saying? It's like, my Lord, look at this place. No, they pull up on a plot of land that's nothing but trees. No houses. No, you know what I'm saying? Nothing. No crops. What are we going to eat? You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? They have nothing. And all the stuff that they brought with them overseas has started to go bad. Has start, I mean, they have, they have nothing. Brandon could teach us a lot better than me. Brandon's a historian. He's got the glasses to tell it now. You know what I'm saying? Dr. Brandon. we got to start calling Brandon Dr. Brandon. But anyway, Brandon gave his first lesson this week, and he said it went awesome. So super proud of you, man. Seriously, I'm really proud of you. Um, but they come over here, and they have nothing. And they, all, they have to trust the Lord. So you and I are sitting in a building in a fully developed city that has coffee shops and restaurants and next year a lagoon. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, go figure, you know? And, and an ele- I mean, we've got, we drove cars. Here. I mean, like, we have all this stuff. We have social security. Probably not by the time we're old, but like, you know what I'm saying? But as of now, we have that. And we have, you know what I mean? And we have all of this stuff that is a result of a handful of people piling in a boat. They didn't have Apple Maps to tell them you're, you'll be there in four hours. You know what I'm saying? They're traveling across the ocean just praying God lets them land on some plot of land. Right? And they get here and they pray and they begin to worship and they begin to build and the Lord begins to provide. Veda has this story we're teaching in homeschool. I did not plan on talking about this. Um, but, you know, the, the Indians are already here. And so that if, if I'm, are we allowed to say Indians now still? Okay, Native Americans. Is that right? Native Americans? Native Americans. Anyway, they, uh, <laughs> is that allowed now? Okay. And so they, they, uh, they come and they meet the, these would-be Americans and they teach them how to grow crops. And, they te- and so they grow crops. They trust the Lord. The crops grow. They have food. They begin to build houses. They're ta- and all of a sudden, this thing happens, and the Lord provides for us. You and I forget that. So we think, well, I've got this, and I've done this, and i got this, and i got this. I don't really need God. I'll show up when I show up, because who cares? I've got everything under control. And we completely miss the fact that you and I are here today because a group of people trusted God when they had nothing, and God answered by way of what you and I have. You and I have what we have because God answered the prayers of a group of people that had nothing. Same with when Moses looks at the Israelites and says, I know, I know when you get into the land and the Lord provides for you and you have crops and you have riches and you have all this stuff, I know you'll forget. You will forget that when the Lord found you, you were slaves you were being beaten. You were being required to build things that you did not have the capacity or the energy to build. And God sent plagues and God parted seas and he brought his own presence with a man named Moses. And he, by way of providence, even put Moses in a place where, think about this, most of the Israelites were completely illiterate. They were slaves in Egypt. So God allowed one Israelite, one Hebrew boy, to be placed in a basket to be picked up by the daughter of Pharaoh. And do you know what Moses grew up knowing? 
everything the best Egypt had because the Lord allowed a situation to take place where he was put in a basket and be found by Pharaoh's daughter. And that was the one that God chose to go to the Israelites and lead them out. And so when God meets him on the mountain and he receives the law, how on earth does that work? Unless you know a man, unless you have a man that is literate because he grew up in the house of Pharaoh, because all this stuff happened to the Hebrews in testing, because one mother said, I'm going to put this baby in a basket and trust God with it. I mean, this, and, and Moses says, I know when you get there, you'll forget that. You'll start eating stuff from the land and you'll think it was your own hand that got you this and it was not. It was the Lord. When you were, I feel, man, I feel this today, okay? When you were standing at the Red Sea about to be killed, it was Yahweh that parted the sea for you. It was not you. When you were being beaten, it was Yahweh who showed up and killed all the firstborns of Egypt so that you could be set free. And one day, the firstborn of Yahweh would set free the entire world. It was on your behalf, and I know you'll forget it. And we in America, let's look, have forgotten. We have. That's why it's, the reason the church is going down is not because of any. It's not because of the culture. It's not because of preachers. I'm some, but it's not. You know what I mean? That's not. What it, it's because we just, we forgot. You are here breathing today because of the faithfulness of God. What, what would happen if those pilgrims had come across the water? What would happen if they hit a storm and every one of them died? You and I would not be here right now. We might be. Maybe another group would come across. But you know what I'm saying? It is the faithfulness of God alone that you and I are here. I guarantee you, if you traced your family line back, how many countless stories of people being healed of cancer or people being saved from life-threatening situations or people being in the slums and something out of nowhere happening to them and they rise up and they're able to bring their family... How, if you could go down your family line, I guarantee you the one thing you would see over and over and over, even if they didn't follow the Lord... Over and over and over and over again is the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God. My dad didn't share this, but there was a season back in the housing market uh, crisis where our entire family almost lost everything we had. Almost lost everything. And in some ways, some seasons felt like it did. We did lose everything. You know what I'm saying? But, but we're here today with everything having been restored to our family. Why? Just because of the faithfulness of God. That's it. Only because of the faithfulness of God. If you forget that you are who you are, you are where you are because of the faithfulness of God alone, if you ever forget that, that's when you'll start sliding into thinking the lie that you did this on your own. You did not do this on your own. You did this by way of a yes from God. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's, that is why we, we as a church, when we're talking about rebuilding Zion, all this other stuff, the, if we ever forget, there's going to come a day when all of us are gone and other people are doing this and they're going to have things that you and I don't have. You know what I'm saying? And when that happens, if they fail to forget or they fail to remember, excuse me, a group of people that met in a tiny building in the slums of Columbia, South Carolina, right across the street from where a Greek festival is that has driven me bonkers this week, right? If they ever forget 
the Lord in his goodness will bring them right back down to a handful of people meeting in the middle of nowhere until they remember, oh, wait a minute, it was God that got us here. I haven't even read Exodus 16, Lord. This is what 2 Peter 3, 9 says. Luckily, the reading is the last part of the message. So. 2 Peter 3, 9b says this, part B. It is God's will that no one perish, but all come to repentance. So if you compare that with Mark 8, or excuse me, Mark, not Mark 8, Lord, Mark, uh, uh, what verse did I just read y'all? Mark 5? Mark 8, Mark 8, yeah, I was right, Okay. If you, if you take that verse in 2 Peter and apply it to Mark 8, remember, it's when we try to gain our lives on our own that we lose it. 2 Peter says it's God's will that no one perish but all come to repentance. God's will is not for you to lose your life. Therefore, he will stop the destruction of you in control as, so as to bring you and I to repentance or a change in how we think if necessary, and it's the goodness of God. Okay, y'all good? All right, Exodus 16. Let me read. I'm going to start in verse 1. All translations are very similar, so just follow along with me. Verse 1. The whole congregation of Israel. So they're out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. This is where they are, okay? The whole congregation of Israel, of Israelites, excuse me, set out from Elim, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. Okay, Sin is not like Hamartia, like Sin, okay? On the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. Okay? Remember, they were slaves. But if only we had died while we had bread. If you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. It's a really interesting wording. I'll tell you in a second. Rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather. Listen, enough for that day. In that way, I will test them. There's Psalm 26. There's the word. Test, prove, etc. Whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring in, it will be twice as much that they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron uh, said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. The word glory could also be goodness. See the goodness of the Lord. Because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? I love that. It's this big moment, you know what I mean? Like in the morning, the Lord's going to prove it to you. And oh, by the way, who are we that you're complaining against us? You know what I'm saying? It's almost like, like talk to the Lord. You know, I love that. Um, for um, Verse 8, Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, here's what's interesting. If you didn't go back and listen to this, I talked about different sources. Um, go back on the podcast and listen to this. You're seeing what I'm about to read. You're seeing the same story like multiple times in the same chapter. Okay? Because I just read this to you, and now listen to how familiar this is. It's from two different voices. Verse 9. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, the Israelites looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Does that sound familiar? Because we literally just read that same account with different wording a few verses before. Okay? So that's why there's these, these multiple streams flowing together to tell one story in the, uh, in the Old Testament. So I'm not going to get into that, but go back and listen to that if you want to. Verse 13. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. The layer of dew lifted. There on the surface of the wilderness was fine, flaky substance, as fine as the frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? That's what the word manna means. It means, what is it? So it's a play on words right there. For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much as you need, an omer to a person according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. Okay, just hang with me. It's going to be good. The Israelites did so, some gathering more than less. Or some gathering more, some gathering less. Excuse me. But when they measured it, with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as each of them needed. Let me explain this first for a second. The Lord says each of you gather an omer for each person. What 18 is saying is some of them gathered way more than an omer, and when they measured it out, it was one omer. And some of them went out and gathered less than an omer, but when they measured it out, it was the same. It was one omer. Those who worked extremely hard and those who barely did any work at all ended up with the same amount. Is that not interesting? Okay. Here we go. Verse 19. And Moses said to them, let, uh, let no one leave any of it over until morning. Now, why would that be a problem? Do you remember what I taught you last week? Let me grab this real quick. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I just keep saying that to make y'all feel better. Um, but I really am. This is what it is. In Genesis 3, when uh, Adam and Eve lose their mind, let's say, Okay, in Genesis 3, do you remember what God says to Adam as a result of what they had just done? I told you this. He said, by the sweat of your, let's say this, face or brow, um, you shall, and we'll just say eat to summarize the rest of it. Have your bread. Okay, by the sweat of your face, now, if you weren't here, if you were here, just to review, this is a Hebrew idiom. An idiom is just a phrase that stands for something else or something deeper or whatever. So this is a Hebrew idiom, idiom that does not speak to you working so hard that you begin to sweat. That's not what this is saying. This is talking to fear-induced perspiration. So he's saying the sweat of your face is the fear of not having enough such a fear that you begin to sweat. Have any of you ever been in a place where you begin to fear something so bad that you begin to sweat and your heart starts beating, right? Happened to me multiple times this week. Really weird, and I should not do that. But when that happens, that's exactly what he tells Adam in Genesis 3. He's essentially saying, you're going to spend the rest of your days worried that you don't have enough. And that was a result of 
if we want to call that, the fall. Well, listen to what he says. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until morning. Why does that matter? Why would you keep any for yourself and save it for morning? Just in case when you leave your tent in the morning, God doesn't bring manna that day. I mean, you see this? He says, don't save any. Don't save any. Why? Because Yahweh is going to prove to you that he provides for you. If it takes 40 years walking around the wilderness for you to finally see that it is him that provides and not you, that's what it takes. But you will not save it. So listen to this. Verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it as much as needed, but when the sun grew hot, it, the manna, melted. When they saved it over and didn't listen to the command of Moses, God allowed it to go bad overnight. Well, God, I thought he was loving. That's love. Because he, he's trying to prove to them, it is not by your works, it's not by your might, it's not by what you accomplish, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Okay. Verse 22. Almost done. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, two omers apiece. When all the leaders of the congregations came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is the day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you need and boil it, or boil what you want to boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not become foul, and there was no worms in it. That is so good. Is this is so, is this just me? I mean, like, is this so interesting to you? If they save it on any other day of the week but the Sabbath, it goes bad overnight. If they save it on the Sabbath so that they do not go out and work on the day of rest, it's just as fresh the next morning as it was when they plucked it. I, I mean, unbelievable. Okay. So they put it aside until morning. As Moses commanded, it did not become foul. Verse 25. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Listen. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, and they found none. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, the sixth day he gives you food for two days. Each of you stay where you are. Do not leave your place on the Sabbath. So the people rested on the Sabbath day. Man, there's so much here. There's so much here. The, the, the Israelites were slaves. That's, they were born into slavery in Egypt. In Egypt, they were not allowed to rest. They worked day in and day out nonstop. Okay? God comes into the wilderness and he says, here's my gift to you. One day a week, I'm forcing you to stop. In fact, if you don't rest, I'll begin to bring things against you. Why? Because God's not good? No, because God's trying to retrain slaves that they're kings. And kings don't work for what they have. 
Kings receive what they have by way of their own inheritance. King Charles, is that his name that just became king, right? I still don't know what they do, though. Like, what do the kings do? It just look good. Um, have a free house. But uh, seems like a pretty sweet gig, you know what I'm saying? Like, just get everything for free. Um, I, I, heard, I read they don't have to pay taxes, which is cool. But, um, but anyway, so King Charles, what did he do to become king? I mean, what, what did he do to become king? What qualifications does he have to be the king of England? Is it England? England. What qualifications does he have? None. So how is he king? He was just born. That's it. The, the only way he's king is him being born. That's it. And they don't even question that. No, you, nowhere on the news do you see, now are we sure this guy's qualified to be king? What has what's he done? What's his credentials? Where did he go to school? You know what I'm saying? Has he led anything before? Like, do we, You know what I mean? No. It's just an expectation that because this person is a part of a certain family, they're king. That's okay. Why, why is it so hard for us to believe that we're sons and daughters of a greater royal family, a royal priesthood, and think that everything that we have is by way of the work of our hands? It is insane that we can look at somebody like Charles and be like, eh, he's, that's, that makes sense to me. And then we'll go right back to trying to earn everything that we have by the sweat of our faith. No, no, no. The Lord is calling us to a place of Sabbath. And if you go to Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4 takes what happened in a day and makes it a lifestyle. The Jew, Joshua Abraham Herschel, I think is his name, has a book called The Sabbath. He's a, he's a Jewish writer. And uh, it's amazing. And one thing that he talks about and a lot of other Jewish scholars talk about is the Sabbath the Jews saw the Sabbath. They have a phrase, and I'm butchering this, but um, that the Sabbath was a glimpse or a shadow of eternity. So on the Sabbath day when they rested, they believed that was a glimpse, a shadow, like looking through a veil of eternity. Why? Because on that day, no matter what needs to be done, you simply are forced to trust God. And why are you forced? Because you and I would not do that on our own. It's just like Veda. There's some times where we have to force her to get ready for bed, even though she doesn't want to get ready for bed. Why? Because we know if she doesn't sleep, she's going to be miserable the next day. You know what I mean? But for her as a kid, all she knows is, I want to play. So sometimes, until she gets to the place where she understands this, we have to force her to do things that she doesn't want to do because we're good. You know, same thing with the Lord. What's happening right now in the church What's happening in you and I, what's happening in me, is the Lord is forcing us to get to the place, if that's what it takes, to where we just simply trust. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, when he goes to the Israelites to provide food, the reason he provides food the way that he does is he comes to test them. And what did I tell you about the word test? The word test is the word that's used for a precious metal when it is refined to remove the impurities to make it strong and pure. The Lord brings the Sabbath as an antidote to what happened in the fall. What is the answer from God to, by the sweat of your face you shall eat? By your anxiety you shall eat. What's the answer to an atom, humanity, that is 
run through with anxiety? Rest. That's what God's... Sabbath was God's answer to what happened in Genesis 3. The tithe was God's answer to what happens in Genesis 3. And it's just like you said, it's not because God doesn't, the church needs your money, but like it's not because of God. God doesn't need you to give him money. God needs you to understand that you didn't get your money by way of your hand in the first place. And the way that you are constantly reminded of that is you continually, the first, you get a paycheck and the first place that 10% goes is God or more. You know what I'm saying? Why? Not because we're in legality, not because in the New Testament it doesn't talk about tithing as much. It doesn't talk about tithing because everybody gave everything they had. They sold houses and gave it to the church. Why would you have to preach on tithing if everybody's selling their houses and bringing money to the church? You don't got to preach on tithing. That's one thing you can totally avoid. You know what I'm saying? You don't got to do that. So, or brother, it's not in the New Testament. Now, if we want to talk New Testament, I would prefer the New Testament standard. But... This is, but that's why. It's not because the Lord needs it. It's because the Lord needs you to realize that you need it from Him. You, you see what I'm saying? And so we get into this flow when we begin to rest and when we begin to give. We get into this flow of trust, and that's exactly why He can throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing that you and I don't have room to contain. Because if you're living in a place of trust, suddenly you become a steward of everything the Lord gives you. Trust, let me write this. This is, I didn't even plan this, Lord. Trust is stewardship. When it comes to your money, and when it comes to your career, and when it comes to your life, brother, I just want to be a good steward. Trust. God throws open the floodgates of heaven and pours out a blessing that you don't have room to contain on those who have simply released 10%. Why? Because you releasing that is not doing your Christian duty. It's you doing an act of trust. And when the Lord sees your heart of trust, He knows that I can give them authority over 10 cities because of what they did with 10 talents. It's in the New Testament. Yeah, I mean, okay. Man, 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 man. Okay. So let me, let me read the rest of this. And uh, there's only a few more verses. What? Four more verses. Verse 31. The house of Israel called it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and taste. Uh, the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Um, Rachel, we're going to need some of that next week. Um, I'm just kidding. Or, or Emily. Emily, one of y'all. Um, I'm just playing. If you want to get a, a good taste of it, take out one of those communion things over there. <laughs> Don't do it. I'm just kidding. Um, Coriander seed, honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord commanded. Let an omer be kept throughout the generations. Now, I'm going to end here. I'm going to go back, but then I'm going to end here. Let an omer of it, manna, be kept throughout the generations in order that they may see the food with which I fed you in the wilderness. Man, there's the Hebrew language right here is unreal. That they may see the food which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it in the covenant, excuse me, before the covenant, for safekeeping the Israelites ate, listen to this, the Israelites ate manna for 40 years. 
until they came to a habitable land, they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And then it says, and Omer is a tenth of an ephah. Not that that matters for us. But, I mean, they ate manna for 40 years. That generation is the generation that when they get to the land of Canaan, they, I believe, make a huge mistake, which is send spies into the land to see if they can take it over. I'm sorry. Like, you know what I mean? Did y'all not watch the Red Sea? Like, you know what I'm saying? Do you not see the cloud over there? Hey, let's send spies in just to make, let's just make, just make sure we can do this. You know? So they send spies in. They all come back giddy. They got these vines that are so big, multiple people are carrying them. I'm, I'm, I'm picturing them coming out with all these brand new clothes they got when they were in there and all this jewelry and all this, you know, stuff. And they come out and they say, the land is flowing milk and honey. It's amazing. Like it is a, and I've been studying some of the geography of that place. The place right in the middle where Israel was located is called the Fertile Crescent. In fact, it was so fertile because of its location to water it, uh, Egypt, in the times of the Exodus, Egypt had this happen every year, okay? Especially in the story of Joseph. Every single year, like clockwork, the Nile River would overflow onto the land. And when it overflowed, it would put uh, fish poop and dead fish and junk from the water and all that stuff, it would spread it across the land. You could say it like this, fertilizer. And the water would recede, and their crops would explode. And eat. that's why when you have the story of Joseph, and there's a famine, everybody's coming to Egypt to get their food because of that. Egypt had everything they needed. Same with Canaan, because of where Canaan was located, the most valuable resource in that time was water. And because of their location near water, it was a fertile land. So they come back and they said, the land's flowing milk and honey. Absolutely, it's exactly what the Lord said. But there are giants in the land. And I don't think we can do this. And Joshua and Caleb are like, like come on, man, let's go, let's go. You know, and I, this is why I relate to Joshua, not just because of my name, because sometimes I feel like everybody's like, man, we can't do this. And I'm like, we got, we're good. Let's go. And everybody's like, let's kill him. You know what I mean? I mean, that's literally, that's, that's literally the story, right? Joshua and Caleb and, and of course, Moses, um, they're like, we got this. We can do this. And so the Israelites conspire to stone them to death because of their willingness to go into the land and trust the Lord. And I know what this feels like. Because I feel like sometimes people have conspired to kill me. But, um, spirit, you know, not literally, but in every other way. And so, uh, I'm just joking. But this is where this generation is the generation that this is talking about in Exodus 16. It's the generation that did not trust God to bring them into the land that he delivered them from Egypt for. That's the generation that for 40 years walked around the wilderness eating manna. Why? Because for 40 years, day in and day out, the Lord forced them to trust that he would provide for them. For 40 years. It wasn't designed to be that. They should have walked right into the land. But listen, the next generation rises up, 
and all they have ever known is if you're hungry in the morning, you walk outside and you eat the food God has given you. And in the evening, you eat the quail that God has given you. So what happens when that generation, after 40 years of being put to the test, walks into the land of Canaan? What happens? They take it. Why were they trusted with the land? Why was that generation trusted with the land of Canaan? Because they just trusted. In verse 4, if you want to go back, and then I'm done. Isaiah, can you hop up here? Thank you. In verse 4, Exodus 16, when it says, The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, for each day people shall go out and get enough for that day, and in that way I will test them. The word rain there, I will rain down or I will rain bread from heaven, is the same wording that is used in Exodus 9.18 when God rains hail down from the heavens on Egypt in one of the plagues. So when he says, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, it was both a reminder that God provides and it was also a direct reminder of what had just happened in Egypt. So really interesting. In Egypt, God rained down hail. In the wilderness, God rains down manna. Okay? Um, which is really cool. The word test there, I already said this, is the same word as Psalm 26, 2. means to prove. Um, manna means what is it? God gives them something that they do not have language for in order to prove his faithfulness to them. Is that not amazing? Is this not what hap is happening in us? I mean, like, if I can just speak to this, this is exactly what's happening to us. I, A, don't know how to be anything but a teacher. I don't know how to be a, an awesome, like, pastor that gets you pumped up and, and knows how to give you the right counsel all the time. Some of you know this. Some of you have come to me for counsel, and you'll leave being like, I feel like that did absolutely nothing for me. And that's because sometimes I just, I'm out of my league when it comes to counsel. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not afraid to admit that. Um, sometimes I can give you some good theology to help you out, but like, you know what I'm saying? Um, but but I'm, I'm, the Lord has just anointed me to be who I am. That's it. But what God is doing here, I don't have, we don't have a reference to go back and say, oh, that's how they did that. I mean, you can look at some people who are doing something similar, but like, we have no reference. We have no people to look at and say, that's God, that's when, except the early church. So we're looking at sometimes our church, and I look at this and I say, what is it? And that's what God is using to prove his faithfulness. And listen, not just to us, I'm going to speak this prophet to Columbia. God is using something that we do not have language for to speak to Columbia about his faithfulness over it. I'm going to end with this. Then we're going to pray. In verse 32, God tells them, Moses, to take one omer of manna and place it in the Ark of the Covenant so that the generations may see what the Lord fed them with. So I want to add one more thing to this. Let me lift this up here. We need a bigger whiteboard. You Sabbathing and you giving because of the two things that are tied to trust in the, in the Old Testament is not just about what's happening here and now. 
is really about legacy. Well, brother, prove that. In the New Testament, the New Testament looks at when Abraham gives the first tithe to Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. Abraham, there's this big story where Lot is taken and Abraham has to go rescue him because he's the patriarch of the family. He comes back. He gives back all the possessions because, you know, he doesn't want anybody to think that he's blessed because of what he did. Anyway, and he gives Melchizedek, who is king of Salem, which most scholars agree is Jerusalem before it's Jerusalem. Okay, so you have Melchizedek, who is king of Jerusalem, all pointing to Jesus. And Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that he had. Well, in the New Testament, it says that Abraham's seed was present when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. What is it saying? It's saying that when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, so did his legacy. His legacy was blessed because of his action to trust the Lord. So when you give, when you show up, when you serve, when you Sabbath, when you rest, when you reject things in your life that the Lord has called you to lay down just out of an act of trust, when you do those things, you're not doing them just so that you will be blessed. You're doing them because something's happening in the seed of your legacy that is going to begin to transform who they are, who their families are, who their kids are, all because you decided to trust the Lord. One generation in the wilderness ate manna for 40 years. The next generation took the promised land. What if you and I just, what if you and I just committed to Sabbath, and tithe for 40 years our legacy would inherit every every single thing that God has promised you and I and them and this is what happens when we the church starts talking about tithing people roll their eyes because it goes like this if you tithe you'll be blessed just like we just talked about and that's true even somebody who is not in a relationship with Jesus if they tithe they'll be blessed that's true but beyond that, there's something that begins to stir in the guts of your legacy. Some of you are real young. Some of y'all aren't even married. So it's, it's really difficult to think about your great-grandkids if you're not even married yet. But take it from somebody who this happened in the blink of an eye. In the twinkling of an eye, you'll be a father and have a kid. Um, when I was a kid, there were things that I did. There were things that I did not do, and it was because I was looking at myself. But there was a lot of things that I did before my daughter was born that she is tasting the fruit of simply because I decided to trust the Lord, including this church. I mean, we started this church. Veda had just been born, so she was born, but she had just been born. Jordan had just quit her job to be a stay-at-home mom. Um, We had just bought a house, and then we felt like the Lord said, okay, start a church now huh? No thanks, you know. And, um, and so we did. And my daughter, she's the only one in kids today, um, but she knows things about the Lord that I did not know at her age. And I don't believe it's because there was a lack of teaching because we were taught this stuff. I believe the Lord has opened up some streams on the inside of her by way of her parents, yes. But, but this is... 
This is what God, at the end of this whole situation with manna, and if you go into Exodus 17, that's when water is brought from a rock. So for fun, just go back and read that. But this entire story ends with God going to Moses and saying, you are to keep a portion of this so that in 10 generations, when they're living their lives and they're blessed and all that stuff, they can go and they can look at this and be remembered. When your ancestors were hungry, I fed them. This is what David, David says. I was young, now I'm old, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Or what does he say? Or their children begging for what? Bread. I was young, now I'm old. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. And in that psalm, David is looking back and he's saying, I'm here in the generation that you saved the manna for. We've got the kingdom. We've got the land. I'm the king that God promised. We've got all this stuff. But let me just remind you that we are here because of somebody that has provided bread for us when we were hungry. I mean, this is unreal. This is, um, I know it's 1208. I'm, I'm done. This, here, there we go. So I feel better. This is what, when Israel, is a whole nother message, but we're going to pray on this. When Israel asked for a king in 1 Samuel 8, when Israel asked for a king, here's what's crazy. It wasn't them asking for a king that was bad. In Deuteronomy, God promised them that he would give them a king. Okay, so it wasn't that. It was that in all of the law, God over and over and over reminds the Israelites that if you turn away from me, you'll know because I will bring other nations in to defeat you. I will use other nations to defeat you if you've turned away from me. Therefore, okay, what would be the answer if you're a nation in oppression what would be the answer for that nation having been given the promise that if you turn away from me, you will be oppressed? What would be the answer? To turn back to God, right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn to me, uh, ask for forgiveness for their sins, I will turn to them, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land, right? If they turn back to me. When Israel is in these battles with the Philistines, for example, because Philistine territory and Israel territory was about here. This is the sea. Okay. So this is where Israel territory was. This is where Philistine territory was. This territory in the middle was up for grabs. This is why they're constantly battling because Israel's trying to expand its borders while the Philistines are trying to expand theirs. This is why they're constantly in battle. So when Israel gets in 1 Samuel 8, they've been in this whole world of fighting and they believe their answer is to have a king like everybody else. Why? So that we can beef up our military and defeat our enemies. Israel's answer to their oppression was, let's beef up our military so that we can win. And they asked for a king. But the answer was never beef up your military so you could fight. 
the answer was to sit right here while I make your enemies a stool for your feet. It was turn to the Lord and I will hear you from heaven, forgive your sins and heal your land. That's what it always was. They made the decision to beef up their army. And so God anoints Saul. He gives them exactly what they want a king. He anoints Saul. And what does it say about Saul? He was good looking. What does that phrase mean in the Hebrew? He was a strong man for battle. They got the king they wanted. And what happens? They go into battle with the Philistines. There's a man by the name of Goliath that's this huge giant, possibly symbolic, possibly not. There's this giant. And where is Saul? Listen, where is Saul when Israel is facing its enemy? Remember, they wanted a king so that they could defeat their enemies by way of power. Where is Saul when Goliath is taunting the Israelites? Hiding. He's nowhere to be found. Is that not the purpose for Saul being there? What Israel has said in 1 Samuel 8 is, we don't want God as king, we want a fighter. And God's answer to that was another king. And how many of you have heard the phrase that David was a man after God's own heart? Y'all heard that phrase? In the Hebrew, that's actually not what it says. If you believe, or if you hear that David was a man after God's own heart, what do you believe? David was chosen because he was a man that was fervent about God. That, no, the Hebrew should really be translated as this. David was a man from God's heart. David was chosen as king because God chose him as king, and that's it. David was the king that in Deuteronomy God promised them they would have. And so David steps in and becomes king. And what does David do? He's a great warrior, but he turns Israel back to the Lord. One thing I desire, and this shall I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to inquire in his temple and gaze upon the beauty of his countenance. That's David. He kills Goliath, but how does he kill Goliath? With a stone. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit. You know what I mean? I, and I taught this to some kids in a summer camp this year. I'll, I'll do this little example. Science. Here's science. You ready? This is science. Uh, Stuart, come up here. Come up here. We'll just do this. Ready for a science lesson? Then we're done. I said we're going to be done like 30 minutes ago, so... Um, if I'm throwing a stone at David, I've taught this before, just if I'm throwing a stone at Goliath, not David, right? And it hits Stuart hard enough to kill him, he's force says he's gonna fall like backwards, right? The Bible says the stone hit him and he fell forward. That doesn't work scientifically. Thanks, Steve. I just wanted to, you know. Right? Scientifically, that does not work. Oh, God, the Bible's not real. Oh, my Lord, I just don't know if I can trust Jesus anymore. You know, right? My Lord. The, the Genesis 1 might not be a 24-hour account of the history of what was created. Oh, God, like, I don't know if I believe anything. So, um, <laughs> David, or Goliath falls forward. Why? Because it was not the stone that killed Goliath. It was the faith and trust of David to even throw the stone in the first place that God kills his enemies on his behalf. Do you see this? 
It wasn't a stone. If you throw a stone at me, even if you slingshot it at me as hard as you could, guess what? It's going to hurt, but it ain't going to kill me. You know what I mean? And we're not talking about a big stone. It's got to be small enough to be flung in a slingshot. So it's a pebble about that big. Even if you shot it out of a potato gun, it's not going to kill me. It was not the stone that killed Goliath. It was the trust in the one who was from the heart of God that God killed their enemies on their behalf. So this is what Sabbath is. Sabbath, you, and real practically, like how many of you just take a day? For most of the part, it's Sunday. That's traditionally for us. Jews, it's Saturday. And on Saturday, they are all they do is they go to synagogue, they learn about the Lord, they do their thing, and then they go home and they rest. And they're super, super legalistic about it, but their legalistic version of rest is way better than our lack of rest. I'll take the first one. You know what I'm saying? I'll take the legalism as long as you get in rest. If legalism is what it takes for you, I'm, this is dangerous, but if legalism is what it takes for you to initially get into rest, then do it. You, we just need you in rest. Whatever you got to do to get there. But they go, they learn. So if somebody says, hey man, like, we've got tickets to a concert today. Like, what you think? It's the Sabbath. You know what I'm saying? And that's where legalistic comes in. But like, you know what I'm saying? And one of the things in the New Testament that the Sadducees were, were called out on is the Sadducees on the Sabbath were supposed to be the priests in the temple. And do you know where the Sadducees were when they were having synagogue? At sporting events. They didn't even have enough Sadducees priests to do the, to do the ceremonies because they were all out at sporting events with the Greeks and the Romans. I mean, so... so it's, it's an honor of this. How many of you have a day? I'm, I'm doing my master's degree right now. And for me, it's on Saturday because obviously Sundays is a little more work than for some of you. But I love it. But on Saturdays, I don't do anything for school. I don't do anything for church. I don't do anything for, you know, try. Not do any, and, and that's just become our Sabbath. And it's hard. It's hard. Because I'm thinking, I could jump ahead today. I could do this today. I could do, And it's like, like, I did do some yard work yesterday. But, like, but it was... It was I'm not going to do anything to earn anything by the sweat of my brow on the Sabbath day. It's a reminder to trust. So how many of you do that? How many of you, like we said earlier, tithe frequently, like consistently? And I'm not just like, like clockwork, paycheck, tithe, paycheck, tithe. For the, for the uh, Jews, it would have been, you know, crops grow 10% to the Lord. How many of us do that? It's not, it's not just an act, like I said, it's not just your Christian duty. It's not your Christian duty. You'll go to heaven if you don't. I'm going to help you out. If you don't tithe, you'll go to heaven. You will just live like hell on earth. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I, I, you know, you'll go to heaven if that's if that's what you if that's your thing. Like, praise God, I want to go to heaven when I die. But I want to bring heaven where I live, and I can't do that unless I got the gates of heaven and windows of heaven open so that I have a blessing. I don't have room to contain. I can't bless people around me if I don't even have anything to bless them with. And the way we unlock that is top. So. Y'all bow your heads. I'm going to end with a story as you're praying with me. Mr. Mark, and I told him I would let him share this, but he's not here, so I'm going to share it for him. Hey, Mr. Mark. Um, is a farmer. He's part of our church. They are in Sheral at a farm, sod farm. It's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Like, it, it looks like a, just a giant football field everywhere. It's so cool. But I was talking to him this week. And he said that they have two really large ponds. I mean, like like acres, 
size uh, ponds, giant ponds, that they built in order to reserve water in case there is drought or in case there's not enough rain, they can supplement it with the water from this pond or these ponds. And I was talking to him about what we, you know, we're talking about last week, Sabbath and all that stuff. And he said, you know, what's crazy is we've had a drought that's been so bad that both of those ponds have dried up and we cannot refill them. And so for the past, I think it was year, he said, for the past year, we have literally had to trust that God would send enough rain for our crops to grow or we would not have anything. And do you know what's happened? The Lord has sent rain and their crops have grown. And man, when he told me that story, I, I told him, that's why I said, you, next time you're here, you have got to share that story. But I'm sharing it for him today and I'll let him give more details when he's here. The reason I'm sharing that is because you and I, you and I were designed to live in a place where we essentially have our lives to the point where we're saying, God, if you don't move, I don't move. If you don't provide, then I won't provide for myself. And we, and we begin to live in this place of desperation that brings out a trust that then allows us to have stewardship over things that we have dreamed over. So we will have a building one day as a church. One of the primary reasons we'll have a building one day as a church is because we have stewarded this building extremely well. We didn't have to. We've done things to this building that we absolutely are not required to do. But we've done it in an act of stewarding what we have and trusting the Lord. And that's going to be one of the primary reasons one day the Lord blesses us with a building. But it's, it's, it's imperative that you and I get back to rest. It's imperative that you and I get back to what we do with our money. You cannot serve man and money, or excuse me, God and money. You will love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. It's easier for the camel to make it through an eye of a needle than for a man that worships money, essentially the context, rather than God to make it into the kingdom. What he's not saying is that person doesn't make it to heaven. What he's talking about is the kingdom that is at hand on earth. It's impossible for you and I to operate in the kingdom if we're primarily operating by way of what we can provide by the work of our hands, essentially what Jesus is saying. So God, I bless. This, is, this has been a, a different couple of weeks. Um, but God, it is so practical what you have been teaching us. I think it's right in line with the Zion thing because the minute the temple is restored, you better believe that Sabbath is reinstated in a way that it has not been reinstated when you were in exile. And so if we're rebuilding the temple, one of the first signs that the temple has been rebuilt is a reinstitution of Sabbath. And God, I believe that as we get into this Hebrews 4 lifestyle of Sabbath, that there is still a Sabbath rest waiting for you and I to enter into. It's what God has promised the people of old, but there is still one waiting for us. Our promised land is the place where we walk into a land with crops we did not sow, with houses we did not build, with buildings that we did not cultivate, and we walk into the land and Yahweh freely gives it to the ones who have been raised in a wild wilderness 
of complete trust where everything we were provided with was so obscure and hidden that we had to say, what is it? That's the promise. That is the blessing of the Israelites. They ate of crops they did not sow. What does that say? It's saying, I'm going to bring you into a place that is essentially the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve ate of crops that they did not grow. Who grew them? God. God, Genesis 2, planted a garden in the east and called it Eden. So Yahweh, I pray that you would elevate our trust. I pray that you would elevate our view of you. I pray that you would allow us to tear down the idols and put you back as the God over everything. And and listen, we will be the first fruits among many brethren, to use the New Testament language, in the earth of what it looks like to live in the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Because a lot of it, a lot of it is having amazing worship and amazing services and all that stuff. But then the other part of it is us living a lifestyle that's different because of the worship and the services and the prayer and everything else we're doing. And Lord, you're marrying those in us right now and it's producing the kingdom. So God, I love you and honor you. It's in your place, in your name, excuse me, in this place. Amen.